Minus 15. Respect all, fear none. Into the upper deck. Intensity is not a perfect. Oh, mercy. Five, four, three, two, one. From inside the Masson newsroom, it is the Masson All Access Podcast, a broken-wristed Paul Mancano, joined by a healthy-wristed Brendan Mortensen, who I can only assume has taken shelter in a stranger's home in order to do this podcast, because all of the power within your hometown has been knocked out, Brendan. Yeah, look, the weather tried to stop Orioles content from coming. Uh, I am currently in the Masson safe house. Uh, they they flew me out to a private house, put me up here. It, it's really nice. Is you that know, like the, Camp the David things or that Masson does. Yeah, no, it's exactly like that. Um, it's exactly what you're thinking, except the house is bigger and nicer. Yeah. So, you know, they really take care of the Mass and All Access podcast. What can I say? They do. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I'm assuming it was like your arch nemesis when you told me the whole town lost power. That was just yeah. like back there with like a weed whacker cutting power lines to try to yeah. stop this podcast. But it it can't be stopped. It must roll it on. It is every week. And we are now in our second offseason podcast. Uh, and the playoffs are in mid-swing. We're not going to talk too much about them because there is a game literally every night. So by the time you listen to this, most likely it will be out of date. I get very confused by these playoffs because I'm watching these games. And in the back of my mind, I'm thinking it's best of seven because we've already seen what, in my mind, is like the first round, and I'm used to seeing the first round's best of five, second round's best of seven, third round's best of seven. But no, first round was best of three, second round's best of five, third round's best of seven, right? The CSs are still best of seven, correct, before they get to the World uh, Series? Yeah, I think so. Okay. It, it's so hard to keep track of all of these rules at this point, but yeah. I, I'm not only trying to keep track of the games and who's actually playing, but I'm also trying to keep track of all the rules and all the scheduling and stuff like that. It, it's a lot. Well, and I'll tell you, I am watching the Astros A series, and I know, unfortunately, I know very few of those players at this point, just because I, I have not watched, I don't think I've really watched an entire full game of any of these West Coast teams because they are yeah. they just never, the Orioles were always on, that we were always covering those, their games, and we never were up for those games or watching those games actively, and they never play the West Coast teams, obviously. It is it is a strange experience. And then you add in the fact that you have no fans in the stands, and it just is the weirdest playoffs that I've ever seen on TV. Um, it, it's a weird experience. But we're, we're not going to talk too much about that, Brendan. We're going to get into the Orioles side of things because we're deep into the offseason. By deep, I mean two weeks. Into the offseason now, and the next thing sort of on the calendar is the start of free agency, which begins after the World Series ends. And then after that, you have the winter meetings in the Rule 5 draft, which Rule 5 draft for the Baltimore Orioles has always been a massive event because they always end up taking somebody. They have for taken at least one guy for several years now. They took two guys last year. But instead of looking at the potential candidates for them to take, we don't know who those guys are yet because teams still have to add players to their 40-man rosters in order to protect guys. And the Orioles are in a weird position now because they are not only looking to potentially add somebody or two in the Rule 5 draft, but they have a ton of guys, prospects within their system that they have to add to the 40-man before the Rule 5 draft in order to keep them from getting 
taken by other teams. Yeah, the the Rule 5 draft rules are a little bit confusing, but uh, to to put it simply, there's a lot of guys that the Orioles, like you said, a lot of guys that could be on the table for the Orioles to keep in that 30-man roster, or 40-man roster, excuse me, and a lot of guys who are kind of on the fringe, some guys who played at the MLB level this year who could be on the fringe of making that roster or not. So really a lot to break down there. Yeah, I mean, in order to, to, to keep it concise, it is pretty confusing. But essentially, um, players who were signed at 18 or younger, so essentially guys that were most likely drafted or signed out of high school, Within five years of them being within a team's organization, they have to be added to the 40-man roster or they're exposed to the Rule 5 draft. And then you've got older guys who are the guys that are most likely taken out of college, so an Adley Rutschman in that instance, who it takes four years for them. Uh, they have to be on the 40-man roster by the end of that season in order to not be exposed for the, the Rule 5 draft. So essentially... The Orioles are in a position right now where they have a, a ton of young talent that is at double-A and triple-A uh, if this were a normal 2020 season. That's where we would have seen a lot of these guys or maybe major make their major league debuts that have to be added to this 40-man roster before December's Rule 5 draft so that other teams can't then take those guys. And when you take a guy in the Rule 5 draft, it's $50,000 per guy that you take. You have to keep him on your roster the entire season. Uh and if you don't, you have to return them for $25,000, so half the price. So, for example, the Orioles took two guys last year. They had them in spring training. Brandon Bailey was one. He ended up playing for the Houston Astros because the Orioles returned both those guys for $25,000 apiece because they realized they weren't going to be able to carry both those guys for the entire season. All of this is very confusing. That's the most boring part of the, pro the podcast, we hope. We're going to get into the guys that the Orioles absolutely need to add to their 40-man roster so that they're not taken. And there's a long list of top Orioles prospects, and it begins at the top with Yosniel Diaz, who is a must, absolutely no-brainer. He is going to be added to the 40-man roster. Yeah, Yosniel Diaz has had his share of injury concerns throughout the minor leagues, but concerns aside, he is still probably the biggest piece of that Manny Machado trade. We know Dean Kramer has come up and looked really, really good. So he could end up being the best player out of that Manny Machado trade. But Yusniel Diaz still has a ton of potential. I think he's a guy who could possibly be in the mix for an outfield spot next season, at the very least a rotational outfield spot next year. So regardless of those injury concerns, the last thing you want is to take a top prospect like Diaz and put him in and, and make him eligible for that rule five draft because another team will undoubtedly take that gamble and take you as out from under you. And I think us included a lot of members of the media were kind of surprised when he didn't make his major league debut this past season. But Michael, I said after the year, it wasn't due to anything on Diaz's end. It was just due to the fact that they had Ryan Mountcastle making his big league debut. DJ Stewart was hitting the cover off the ball for a time period uh, and of course, Cedric Mullins was was your favorite player, and was uh, you know earning a, his spot on the roster as well. So Diaz just didn't have a spot to make his debut, but he did earn pretty good reviews from the coaches, uh, whether it was Buck Britton down at the buoy at the alternate site, and we heard of course from Mike Elias and Matt Blood, who's the the director of player development for the Orioles. They all said that Diaz looked pretty good. So 
By all accounts, he's still a top 10 prospect in your system. You want to hold on to him. Then we got a list of other guys. Michael Bauman, who is just outside the top 10 in the Orioles uh, prospect list. You have Zach Lowther. You have Ryland Bannon. All those guys, they are between 24 and 25 years old. I think all three of those guys, based on their potential, are musts to add to your 40-man roster. And coming into the year, Bauman and Lowther, at least, were both guys that we looked at and said, okay, maybe these are two pitchers who could make their debuts sometime in 2020. It ended up being Kramer and Aiken, but I think Bauman and Lowther were pretty firmly in that mix, in that conversation. And I think these are both guys that could fight for a rotation spot sometime in 2021, whether it's, I think they both have the potential to be a number three through a number five guy in a rotation. And at the very least, I think both of them could be kind of a plug and play guy. If you're looking for somebody to just eat up some innings at the beginning of a game or of an opener type. So I think both of these guys will not only be protected on the 40 man roster, but also make their debuts in 2021 and fight for rotation spots. Yeah. I mean, Lowther and Bannon joined the pool kind of late. uh, And Bauman actually suffered a shoulder injury that is not expected. Uh, They had concerns immediately when you have a, a guy, especially a guy that throws that hard that had shoulder issues, but the Orioles aren't overly concerned about it. They did shut him down a couple, with a couple weeks left in the Bowie alternate site season, so to speak, but he is expected to be ready by spring. Still immense potential for Bauman. Uh, Bannon still has the potential to be potentially a utility guy or based on what talent the Orioles have in the infield, he might be an everyday starter at either third base or second base in the big leagues next year. Maybe not, but he definitely deserves to be added to the 40-man. And then one other guy that I think is a lock is uh, Alexander Wells, who's going to be 23 uh, by the time next season rolls around. So I think he, uh, in addition to those three guys, is, is definitely a lock to be added. Yeah, Wells isn't the, the same type of prospect that Bauman or Lowther is, but I think he's got that same chance to at least be a uh, an opener in a game or a long reliever at the very least i think he has a chance to fight for a rotation spot but if you're you're putting my money on on two of those three i would say that bauman and lowther will probably get more of a chance in the starting rotation but i think wells his floor i think is to be a good piece in that orioles bullpen and i would expect him in the same way that I expect Bauman and Lowther to make their debuts in 2021, I think Wells does the same. And it's probably going to be in the Orioles' bullpen, but I think he'll be a good arm there for sure. So we just listed five guys, Diaz, Bauman, Lowther, Bannon, Wells, that have to be added to the 40-man roster. The roster currently sits at 38 players when you include Trey Mancini and Richie Martin, who will both be added back to the 40-man roster when they are off the 60-day IL. We expect both those guys to make their recoveries. So that's five spots. You could, if you want to, you could fill two spots right there um, to get to forty. But then you would have to cut three guys there, and then we haven't even gotten into the other prospects that could be added to the forty man, and uh, probably in some instances may deserve a spot on the forty man. So the Orioles are going to have some tough decisions. Let's get to the guys that are kind of in iffy territory right now that do need to be added to this 40-man roster in order to not be exposed to the Rule 5 draft. Let's start with Isaac Matson. He's 25 years old. He was the, the oldest piece of the deal last year for Dylan Bundy that happened last November, December. Uh, four prospects came back, and Matson 
was viewed as closest to the big leagues. And if there were this were a full 2020 season, probably would have made his big league debut. I think you have to add Isaac Matson just because I think any team would be looking at that guy saying he could probably make our camp out of, you know, if he were in our system, he could probably make the team out of spring training. He's this close to the big leagues. So it's not like you have to hide him somewhere on your 25-man roster and keep him the entire season. No, he might be a bullpen piece for the Orioles coming out of spring training camp in 2021. Yeah, and the thing with Matson, if he's if he was like let's say a low A ball guy and you know still had the good potential, then maybe you don't put him on the 40-man roster at this point. But like you said, a guy who's so close to the major league level, another team would almost definitely scoop him up. And at this point with Matson, you've already gotten a pretty good look at some other arms in the Orioles bullpen in the 2020 season. And if there's a few arms in there that you don't think really worked out, maybe like a Cole Solcer struggled this year, maybe that's a guy that you would look to cut and bring on a Matson to add to that Orioles bullpen because you've already seen what you have in Solcer. If it's not the result you wanted, then you take another shot with Matson. If it doesn't work out next season, then maybe you move on from there. But you've got to at least see what you have in him. So I think he is not a lock to be added to the 40-man roster, but I think he's pretty close to it. I, yeah, I, I just don't think Mike Elias wants to lose one of the four pieces of that Dylan Bundy trade before he even makes his Major League debut. And there's always the potential that they, they, he could be taken in the Rule 5 draft and then be sold back to the Orioles if they don't want to keep him. But why take that risk with a guy that you clearly wanted because you traded for him and you really didn't get to see... You haven't really gotten to see him really pitch in an actual game yet. So why not uh, just add him to the 40-man? Uh, and if it doesn't cost you taking somebody off that you would really like to keep. And then another guy that is an interesting case, Zach Pop, who's 24 years old, he had Tommy John surgery. One of the pieces of the Manny Machado deal was viewed as having an electric arm at the time. Tommy John surgery is going to change that. He has not pitched in a game since 2019. He says he's full go in an article with Rockabaco recently he had. Uh, I don't know if a team would be willing to take a, a chance on a guy that's missed a whole year and just had Tommy John surgery last May, but the potential is there for Zach Pop. It is still there if he is fully healthy. So the Orioles might have to keep him in order to just avoid another team taking him. Well, look, I'm going to make the same argument here that I made with Isaac Matson, which is just you've seen the guys that you currently have in the Orioles bullpen in 2020 and if there's a few of those guys that just didn't work out the way you were hoping, that leaves room for guys like Matson and Pop and we'll get to Cody Sedlock afterwards. I think there's probably two or three guys in the Orioles either rotation or bullpen that are cut candidates. Yeah. And in that case, you have room for guys like Matson Pop and Cody Sedlock. Well, so Cody Sedlock was not added to the 40-man roster last year, which means he was exposed to the Rule 5 draft and he wasn't taken by anybody in that Rule 5 draft. He's now a year older. He's 25, former first-round pick. Missed a lot of time over the course of his career with injuries, but had a very solid 2019 before he wasn't added to the 40-man roster that offseason. And honestly, I think the Orioles got away with one by not adding him to the 40-man roster. He wasn't at the alternate site this year, which makes me think either he, he definitely wasn't ready because he's never pitched above high A ball, 
or maybe the Orioles might have been trying to hide a guy like Cody Sedlock, or they just don't, you know, he was also taken under a previous regime. Maybe they just don't have the same attachment to him. I, as a former first-rounder, I think he has to be a guy that you tr- you try to protect. I was shocked when they didn't protect him last year. And I don't know if it, if it makes a team more or less likely to try to take him in the Rule 5 draft if he's exposed than last year. Do you know what I'm saying? It, it, the yeah. year off, does that make him less likely to be taken? Probably, but it's tough to say. Well, it's like the house on the end of the street that's been on the market forever. And like you always drive by the for sale sign. And like the longer it's there, the more you're thinking, okay, like there's got to be something wrong with this house. Are you, in, are or, you house hunting? Is that? <laughs> I'm, I am not, but that is, <laughs> that is the first metaphor that, that popped into my head. But I think with Cody Sedlock, the this scenario that I was thinking of with him is, okay, if there's guys that are going to come up later in the 2021 season that you're going to want to add to the 40-man roster, then maybe Sedlock is a guy that you add early on in the season because his his clock is running out a little bit. He's a 2015 first-round pick. He's getting up there in age a little bit. This is the point where you would expect a first-round pick to be producing at the major league level, and I think it's, it's about time. So if Sedlock gets up to that level – and you add him into the 40-man roster, if he comes out towards the beginning of the season and looks good, great. Then you keep Cody Sedlock on the roster, but maybe he's one of those where you will add at the beginning, and then if there's more guys at the end of the season that you're hoping to add to the 40-man roster, he might be a cut candidate as the season goes on, potentially. I'm, I'm not quite sure with Cody Sedlock, but I think the potential is still there, obviously, as a first-round pick, but it's it's about time that that potential is coming to the surface. And and part of it is not his fault, just based on, you know, he maybe he was pitching with Bowie in 2020. If this were a normal season, then he would have um, opened some eyes and the Orioles might be more inclined to, to add him to that 40-man roster. But, yeah, I mean, he's 25 years old and hasn't pitched above high A ball. So um, it, it is going to be a difficult decision there. It, personally, if I were Michael Elias, I would try to find a way to add him to that 40-man roster. And if you have to add him and maybe he gets you from 39 to 40 and you have to risk not taking a guy in the Rule 5 draft, I think that that might be a decision that I would make. I would probably add him and, and just not take anybody in the draft if that's the decision that I have to make. But we just listed the five no-brainers and three iffy guys. That's already eight guys that you would have to add to your 40-man roster. And then... The other candidates we can touch on real quickly. I don't think these guys are really uh, likely to be added to the 40-man roster because I think the Orioles can sneak them through the Rule 5 draft without having to worry about adding them anywhere. Uh, Mason McCoy, he's 25 years old. He's an infielder. Um, He had a 669 OPS with Bowie in 2019. He's a former six-round pick. You know, I like him as a prospect. I don't think he's close enough to the big leagues to where a team is – looking at him and saying, that guy, we want to keep on our 25-man roster going forward. And then the other guys, Brian Brian Gonzalez, who was a former third-round pick in 2014, but was the Orioles' first selection there because they forfeited uh, some of their top draft picks for reasons we won't discuss. And then Gray Fenter, who's 25, hasn't pitched above uh, Delmarva. And Brett Cumberland, who's a catcher, also 25, uh, who was acquired in the Kevin Gausman trade. I just don't see... Those four guys, I think... McCoy is the most likely to be added to the 40-man roster, but even that, I think, is is a slim chance. 
Yeah, I would agree with you there on on Mason McCoy. I think he has the best chance just because he fits a role that the Orioles could be looking at. There were a lot of utility infielder type guys that the Orioles tried out in 2020. Ramon Urias, Pat Valeka, Andrew Velasquez. If you didn't like what you saw out of those three, then maybe you opt to protect Mason McCoy and say, okay, he's not quite ready yet, but maybe we'll call him up at some point. But like you said, we are getting awfully close to that 40-man cap, and I think Mason McCoy is probably teetering the line of, is he worth keeping on the 40-man roster, or can we find a player with similar, similar potential to Mason McCoy in that Rule 5 draft? Yeah, so let's get to the guys that they might have to cut. And keep in mind, if they cut these guys from the 40-man roster, they're exposed to waivers, so they could be picked up by a different team. But if they sneak through, then they can just outright them to AAA Norfolk. Um, and they're, for the, a lot of these guys, I don't think they really have to worry too much about waiver claims. In terms of most likely, I think, to be cut, I think David Hess is in this category. I think Austin Wins is in this category. I think Cole Sulser, those three guys, I think right off the bat, probably the most likely candidates for me to cut, sneak through waivers, and outright them. Okay, so I can we just get the elephant out of the room here before we get like a million <laughs> What's comments? What's the elephant because in the room? I, I know that we are going to get everybody saying, okay, why aren't the Orioles cutting Chris Davis before next season? Yeah, they're not going and to. And they're not going to. And the reasoning behind that, at least I think, the Orioles saved at least $14 million this season on Chris Davis's contract because of the shortened season. There is a pretty decent chance that the 2021 season is not 162 games. I think there's a chance it could be somewhere in the 120 range. We don't know. This is speculation, but I think there's at least a chance that next season is not 162 games. If you cut Davis tomorrow, the Orioles are responsible for the entire entirety of his remaining salary, which is over $46 million over the next two years. But if that 2021 season is shortened, then the Orioles are in the same situation that they were in this year, which is that they save a bunch of money on that Chris Davis contract because the season is shortened and you can truncate that pay for just those games. So if you're the Orioles, I think at this point you need to take the chance that the 2021 season is shorter than 162 games and that you will not be responsible to pay the entirety of the money remaining on Chris Davis's contract. So for everybody asking, why are the Orioles keeping Chris Davis on the roster for next season? Because we are pretty sure he is not going to get cut for that reason. So for everybody asking, I just wanted to get it out of the way before we got into the rest of the 40-man roster. Chris Davis, our expectation is that he is going to be on the roster for the 2021 season. That is a clever way to think about that. I didn't think about that at all in terms of the money that they might save um, if the the 2021 season is not 162 games. But, yeah, that could be a potential factor. And Mike Elias has basically already said, yeah, we, we don't have uh, any plans to change the fact that he is on the roster now. So um, we just kind of have to assume he's going to be there right now. So with that already taken care of, with the 38 total that we have right now um you don't include chris davis but would you agree that those three guys that i mentioned who do i even mention cole Solser, austin, austin wins, wins 
and David Hess, I think, are the most likely candidates that they're going to try to sneak through waivers. Yes, I would agree with that. Um, I think I would add some. Um, I think Andrew Velasquez is a cut candidate yes, for sure. 100%. You got you got a good look at him last season, and I think Ramon Urias, yes, didn't have as much time, but I think you liked what you saw with Urias more than Velasquez, and especially with a guy like Ryan Ryland Bannon probably making his debut next year. Like you said, Bannon is either going to be the everyday infielder at, at some spot, whether it's third base or somewhere else, or he is at the very least going to be a utility guy for the Orioles next year. And I think if you're the Orioles, you'd probably much rather have Ryland Bannon than an Andrew Velasquez. And I think if you're flipping a coin between Urias and Velasquez, I'd probably give the edge to Urias at this point. Yeah, they're both going to be 26 years old by opening day 2021, but uh, I think Velasquez hit about 150-ish and was, I think, probably viewed as maybe slightly better defensively than Urias, but you did see a little bit from Urias. I think Urias is on that list, too, of guys that could be cut just because... We, he did hit very well. He hit like 360 in the short in the small sample size we got from him. It, the sample size was only 10 games, though. And I don't know if a team is willing right. to try to pick him up off waivers and take that up that chance with him. Um, 26 is not old by any stretch, but I think that a team probably... they The Orioles probably would be able to sneak him through. I might... I, this is probably going to be unpopular, but I might cut Pat Vileka before I cut Ramon Urias. In fact, I know okay. that's going to be popu- unpopular, but because <laughs> Orioles yeah. fans got a good look at Pat Vileka. And Pat Vileka, by the way, Brendan, played 52 games this year, which yeah. is insane to think about. Why did we he not consider him? played everywhere, too. Why didn't we consider him from MVO, for most valuable Oriole? I, I don't know. <laughs> that's a great question. Just based on the sample That's side. a great question. And he, he, I think his yeah. OPS was like a, in the 700s, uh, if I'm correct. Really not a bad that's season from no, Pat 791. Vileka. Close to 800. Yeah. Not a bad season. The, the, the yeah. thing is, he's 28 years old, uh, and I think his versatility is more theoretical than it is actual. I think he he can play shortstop, but he was not very good there defensively last yeah. year. Uh, probably primarily a first baseman, second baseman, um, and I just don't know if he's a guy... Like, he can fill gaps for you if you need it in 2021, but... I don't know. I, I think you can probably sneak him through waivers and be okay there. So let's say let's say that they, they cut David Hess. Let's say they cut Cole Sulser, who um, you know, obviously started out the season as the closer and and could not keep hold on to that and did it with a five five six ERA. Uh, and let's cut Austin Wins, who did not appear in a game for Baltimore in twenty twenty. Uh, he's thirty years old and the Orioles also have four catchers. Brian Holiday, I think, is another one. And for the sake of argument, let's cut Andrew Velasquez. That's four spots that gets the Orioles down to 34. If you fill up six spots, you can get Diaz, Bauman, Lowther, Bannon, Wells, and Matson in there and get to 40. I think there are some other guys on the list that might be cut candidates. I think Brian Holiday could be. I think they might, they might choose between Holiday and Wins and see which one they want to try to sneak through waivers. Uh, but I think one of those guys is probably going to be a a roster casualty. And then there are a couple other pitchers. Jorge Lopez, I think, is a chance. You don't think he's going to be cut, though. I, I I think, based on what we saw by the end of last season, though, from him, a 6-3-4 ERA in total. He showed flashes, but I think it, he's worth exposing to waivers to try to keep one of the guys, one of the prospects that you have. 
Yeah, I think the thing with Lopez is how quickly do you put somebody like Bauman or Lowther in the rotation? Because it's possible that Lopez could still be like the number five for the O's to start next year. But if you call up Bauman or Lowther and think they're ready to go right away, I think they're both probably better options than Jorge Lopez at that starting rotation spot. I think it's just a matter of how quickly you want to call those guys up. Yeah. I would be surprised if Lopez was cut because of how much opportunity he got this season. I think if he's not in the rotation, I think there's still a chance that he could go into the bullpen. But looking at the pitchers, he is kind of at the bottom of that list in terms of production for the 2020 season. So I think there's a chance. I don't think there's a super high chance. I think the other guys we talked about are more likely to get cut. We haven't talked about the guys who could potentially get traded to open up those roster spots as well. I think if a few guys get dealt, Lopez probably stays on the roster. If a lot of guys stay put, Lopez could be a cut candidate. But I think he's at the bottom of the list for the pitchers, but he's just high enough to be kind of a fringe cut candidate. Yeah, he's going to be 28 years old by the time the next season starts. Remember, he was also a waiver claim by the Orioles midseason from the KC Royals, who... We could see a Carson Fulmer type situation where he gets put back on waivers and the team that put him on waivers a couple months earlier end up claiming him like the Pirates him did back. For, yeah, for Fulmer. So, yeah. But I think if he goes, it's it's not the end of the world. Um, so I listed all those guys. I don't think there's anybody that I'm really leaving out that could be a potential cut candidate. And then you mentioned the trade candidates because at this point last year, the Orioles were able to work out deals a little bit later, November, this point last year, the Orioles were able to work out deals sending Jonathan VR to the Marlins, sending Dylan Bundy to the LA Angels, and thereby opening up two roster spots that I think they went into that draft with 38 guys on the roster, two open roster spots for the Rule 5 draft. They ended up taking those two guys. So the Orioles, at this point, they have 38 guys. Do you want to keep... If you're GM right now, Brendan, how many of the prospects that we listed do you want to keep, and who are you cutting in order to keep those guys? I think looking at the prospect list that we made of the guys you have to protect, you mentioned the the five guys that are musts, Diaz, Bauman, Lowther, Bannon, Wells, and then I think you keep, I think you keep eight prospects total. I think you keep Matson, Pop, and Sedlock, which means... What, what were we at after the cut candidates if we're keeping eight prospects? If we're keeping eight prospects? Yeah. So 30, what's 38 plus? So 46. So you have to, if you want to get it to 40 on the dot, you got to cut six guys. Okay. So for me right now, I would go Hess, Solcer, yep. Wins, Velasquez for sure. Those are the four. Mm-hmm. And then the two after that, <laughs> That's where it gets tough. Uh, I want to go Holiday and Urias. I think you try to sneak through, but that puts you at 40. Yeah. And at that point, I think you want to go into the Rule 5 draft with at least one spot because yeah. if somebody falls into the Rule 5 draft that you don't expect to be there, you need at least one spot almost as a security blanket, right? Yeah. Because if if somebody amazing falls in, you've got to take that chance and you don't want to be put in a position where you kept 
an iffy guy on your roster, but a stud falls into the rule five draft and you want to take him and you can't. So at the very least, I think you want to be at 39, which brings us to the possible guys that could get traded before the rule five draft. If you don't want to cut a guy like Brandon Klein or Jorge Lopez or Pat Vileka, you've got to trade some guys to get from 40 to 39. Would you, who would you look to, to trade? Cause I think there are a few candidates here. I think Cobb is a, maybe their biggest trade candidate at this point, though mm-hmm. his deferred money is, is going to be a big obstacle. I think coming, I think guys, teams are probably going to try to save money as much as possible this winter. Um, Paul Fry, I think, might be a trade candidate. He's 28 years old, was very, very good as a lefty in 2020. Jose Iglesias, I would throw on that list. I know you probably don't want to trade him, but I think he could be a trade candidate, assuming the Orioles, of course, pick up his option for the 2021 season. Uh, And then maybe Renato Nunez. Who of those guys would you have to trade in order to get to 39? I would be surprised if it's one of the better players that gets dealt. I know that's the route the Orioles took last season with VR and Bundy, but I would be shocked if Cobb got traded at this point because I don't think teams are going to want to spend that much money on Alex Cobb when there's starting pitching in the free agent market coming up relatively soon after that. If a team falls in love with Alex Cobb, I think they probably would have traded for him at the trade deadline this season. So I would be surprised if Cobb get dealt i would be surprised if iglesias got dealt as well because if you trade jose iglesias at this point you're probably just looking for a a similar veteran shortstop to bring in for next season because you don't really have anybody at that spot right now so why trade jose iglesias when you're pretty much going to have to trade him and then sign somebody and hope that they give you some sort of similar production to what jose iglesias gave you in 2020 yeah if he's already on the roster keep them at that point. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I would probably agree there because I, I don't think you want to put the clock on yourself. Like you don't want to put pressure on yourself to try to make these deals. You have no rush to try to trade in Alex Cobb, Jose Iglesias. If those or Paul Fry, if those deals aren't there in this off season, if you're not getting a good enough return, I think with any of those guys, you don't want to say, oh, well, we just have to get to 39 by the rule five draft in case we want to take somebody because at that point you you want to put the you want to take the pressure off yourself there it that should not be a reason to put pressure on yourself to try to make a deal because you can still trade these guys by next deadline if you want to or further on in the offseason if teams get desperate by spring training if some starter goes down and they really need Alex Cobb to come in so I think still the most likely is uh that you try to cut guys in order to get under 40 but that being said, I, I didn't see Dylan Bundy getting dealt before winter meetings at this point last year. I thought that he was still going to be a fixture in that rotation, um, and they ended up swapping him for four prospects and then signing a couple guys. I think Cole, they signed Cole Stewart a month later, signed Wade LeBlanc, um, and were able to cobble together a rotation there. So if, if there is a deal there, you know, that shouldn't stop them from trying to trade a guy, but I think the most likely option is they try to cut guys to get under 39 or to get well, to 39 or 38. Yeah, and it's the Michael Givens approach, right? There were a few years where people thought that Michael Givens was, okay, this deadline, he's definitely going to get dealt. Oh, he didn't get traded? Okay, next deadline, he's going to get yeah. dealt. And it just kept kind of going, and you just wait until the trade is there. So if they get 
some perfect offer for Alex Cobb that they can't pass up. Sure, you trade Alex Cobb. You, you know, you take the deal that's there. But I'm looking at three guys that I think are the most likely trade candidates before winter meetings at this point. Oh, I would also uh, group Renato Nunez into that group of yeah. like Cobb, Nunez, Iglesias, and Pedro Severino, I think are four that are potential trade candidates for next season. But I think they're too good of players at this point to say, okay, we've just got to dump them before winter meetings. Right. The three that I think could get dealt are Paul Fry, Sean Armstrong, and Cesar Valdez. Not because they're not good players. They all had really good seasons next year. Paul Fry, last season, excuse me, Paul Fry had the low, the highest ERA among them at a 2.45. So, you know, Paul Fry is going to be 28 at a 2.45 ERA last season. I think he is the safest of the three. The other two that I'm looking at, Sean Armstrong, is going to be 30 years old next year, had a 1.8 ERA last season. If a team really needs a bullpen arm but just weren't looking at Armstrong at the deadline last season, I think he's one. And then Cesar Valdez. Maybe you just capitalize on the momentum that Valdez had last season, came out of nowhere, had a fantastic year, a 1-2-6 ERA with a whip just under .7. I think maybe you can ride the wave on Valdez a little bit and say nobody's been able to figure him out yet. Why wait until the trade deadline next year when you can get Cesar Valdez right away and maybe people still won't figure out his changeup around the league and you can get the first half of the season of Cesar Valdez when people are still working to figure him out rather than getting met the deadline. So I think those two, because they're a little bit older, won't be in the Orioles bullpen for too much longer, presumably. I think those are two pieces that are good enough to get trade interest around the league but maybe not so good that you have to hold off on them until next trade deadline to make sure that you get the best trade possible. That would be something if they could trade Cesar Valdez after having him pitch for well, like Tommy Malone, right? Yeah. 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 I mean the same, the same scenario and, and because he's not going to cost much dollar wise, I could see a team doing that. I could see a team trying to fortify their bullpen with that. I could see a team trying to, if they are des- in desperate need of a DH um, or, you know, backup first baseman going for Renato Nunez because he's not going to cost you that much money. And teams are going to be looking to save money, like we said, this offseason. So, yeah, that, those would be interesting trade candidates. My take, if I'm just looking at guys, I'm assuming that you can't necessarily get a deal done, and I think they will try to... I would probably bet that they will get a one deal done, maybe one trade before winter meetings, but let's assume that they can't. Assuming there is a winter meetings, by the way, we still don't know. (laughs) We have no idea. Uh, But I think that of the guys that we mentioned, the prospects, I would probably try to protect Diaz, Bauman, Lowther, Bannon, Wells, so that's five, Matson, and Pop. I would probably skip over Sedlock because I think if they were willing to take the chance last year, they're probably even more willing to take the chance this year that he's not going to get scooped up by another team. So that's seven spots you have to open that gets them to 45. I know this is sabermetrics here in terms of roster spots. Um, but, so much sabermetrics on this podcast. Yeah, no, I mean... and we're Every throwing, week, it's sabermetrics, sabermetrics. We're having a, a full-screen graphic up there, so this encourages you, if nothing else, to watch the podcast as well while you are listening to it. But so that gets you to 45. If you want to get to 39, which I think is probably good enough if you want to take maybe one guy in the Rule 5 draft probably don't need to take two 
you could. There are a couple rounds, and uh, the Orioles are going to have the fifth overall pick in that draft. I think you cut David Hess, Andrew Velasquez, Brandon Klein, I think, could be a cut candidate, considering he's 29 years old. Uh, Austin wins, Cole Solcer, Jorge Lopez. I think that's six guys. You get to 39, you take a guy in the Rule 5 draft. You're done. Yeah, I would agree with you there. I think Sedlock is on the bubble for me. I think it's going to be a toss-up of would you rather still wait and see what you have with Cody Sedlock or would you go with what you've already seen out of somebody like a Jorge Lopez or a Brandon Klein? I think those two, their values are going to be held against Cody Sedlock when you're looking at the 40-man roster. Personally, I would bet on the younger Sedlock because he has the first-round pick potential over somebody like Jorge Lopez where you've already seen what you have in Lopez. So I'd bank on that, Lopez but is I think a it's very possible that, that this is true. <laughs> this is true. So I think it's it's really just weighing, do you bank on the future with what you haven't seen, or are you content with what you already yeah. have seen, which is not great, but can be passable at the major league level? I, I think I am biased, and you're probably biased this way, towards youth in just about I am. Yes. all instances. Yes. Um, I think that this this is the point of the rebuild, is to bet on the youth to give them an opportunity and what better way than to add them to your 40 man. No, there's just no reason to try to give a guy away when he's a young prospect in your system. All you're trying to do is to bolster and fortify the system that you have. So why risk losing a guy uh, exactly in that, you know, to, to another team that's just looking to do the same type thing. Um, Because worst case scenario is Cody Sedlock. You don't protect him. Yeah. He gets scooped up by somebody else who is able to untap that first round potential that he had. Cody Sedlock goes and, you know, pitches lights out somewhere and you say, "Why didn't we protect Cody Sedlock and Jorge Lopez maybe you keep and he's he's fine." Yeah. You know, he does what Jorge Lopez did last season. I think you'll live with saying, "Okay, we'll take the the fine out with Jorge Lopez on a gamble on Cody Sedlock." rather than if Sebak goes somewhere else and kicks butt, like you kept Jorge Lopez for yeah. that. You know, I, I think, again, I, I would agree that I'm very biased towards the youth and I would rather gamble on higher potential than stay kind of mediocre What whatever value Jorge Lopez or Brandon Klein is going to give you. I'd love to go back and look at the 2016, 2017, I think 2016 Rule 5 draft, and look at the Indians roster and see who they kept to... Instead of Anthony Santander. To allow Anthony Santander to be taken in the Rule 5 draft. I don't know who it is. I'm assuming they were at 40 and maybe had a max capacity and couldn't fit somebody in. I I don't know, but that you you run the risk of of looking stupid. And you can't worry about that too much as a GM. You can't worry about looking stupid in a few years. But if you're a rebuild, why not take the chance on a a young guy? Uh, Well... We're going to see. And they, the Orioles still have several weeks and more than a month at this point. I don't know exactly when the deadline is uh, when they have to get their roster finalized by the Rule 5 draft, um, which, by the way, is the most... I always wondered why they never ran it on TV, and then I realized it's because it is the most boring spectacle that you will ever see 
as a spectacle. It is in an yeah, hype it up a little bit more for the podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Look, I'm just saying the 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 uh, the idea of it is cool, and the players that you get, and the coverage. Like we can do great coverage, but the spectacle of it is boring. That's all I'm saying, Brendan. It is in a well, conference it's... room. It is on the last day of winter meetings. All of the reporters are gathered in the back watching this happen as they are about to catch their flights. You got like John Morosi checking his watch to try to make sure he can get on the last flight out of town. Like nobody wants at that point, the teams are just making their picks. They have no time on the clock. It just, it, it gets done in 30 minutes and then everybody just bolts. Well, it's also the only draft where you can go around at different teams and they can just go, nah, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's it. You know, yeah. Yeah, like, ah, don't we don't feel it. like taking anybody. <laughs> yeah. And then imagine go to the next guy, just the NFL draft in April. They like all the hype, the Cleveland Browns have the number one overall pick. Yeah, we're good. Eh, just, nah. we, we got enough guys. Keep them. Um, yeah. <laughs> we'll see if it happens on time in the place. Dallas, it's supposed to be like the second week. I think it is the 10th through the 14th, I believe, of December is when the Rule 5 draft happens. Uh, but if that's going to be a virtual event, that's going to be even more boring potentially for the Rule 5 draft. But the winter meetings are fun, too. And not to, I am just, you know, still follow our There are so many boring things to look forward to <laughs> in the off season. Still so make sure you're tuning into the podcast yeah. for all the boring things. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, Brendan, thanks so much for hopping on from uh, undisclosed bunker somewhere yes. in the state of New York. Uh, but that is not all that we have for the podcast. Of course, we have the broadcaster for the Asheville tourists on to discuss Terran Vavra, who is a prospect the Orioles don't need to add to their 40-man roster, but he is a guy that they received in the Michael Givens trade, who was immediately slotted into the top 15 in their, in their system. We haven't seen him play at all yet, of course, in the Orioles system, so I wanted to get some insight into who he is as a player. Here's our conversation. We're joined now on the Masson All Access podcast by Doug Maurer, who is the director of broadcasting and media relations for the Asheville Tourists. You may know them as the former team of new Orioles prospect Terran Vavra, who just entered the system right at the trade deadline, came over uh, as one of the big pieces in the Michael Givens trade. So we're going to discuss what he brings to the table. But Doug, thanks so much for hopping on here. Yeah, you bet, Paul. It's uh, it's good to talk some baseball this you know this time of year, and um, we obviously didn't have a season this past year, so uh, that team with Taren is, is still pretty fresh on my mind. Absolutely, he he was with you for the majority of the season. What was the most impressive thing you saw from Taren Vavra in the 2019 season? Last time you saw him on the field for the tourists, um, well, it really wasn't much that I wasn't impressed with, uh, to be honest, Paul. He, uh, he had a very good head on his shoulders, a very heady ball player. Um, but, uh, you know, he was also the MVP of the league. So he was clearly our best player. Um, to be honest, he was a little advanced, uh, for the South Atlantic league. Uh, however, we were happy to have him, uh, for pretty much the whole year. Uh, he, he ended up missing the last month of the season with a little bit of an injury and it, it probably cost us a, a playoff spot, to be honest, because when, you know, when he came up in the order, uh, everyone always felt pretty good that, that he would deliver. Uh, but to his credit, he actually played uh, with that injury for a couple of weeks before we diagnosed it and, 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 you know, sidelined him for the rest of the year. He, he just wanted to be out there. He, he's that type of a gamer. Um, so I would say, you know, very knowledgeable, uh, baseball savvy guy, good clubhouse guy, and uh, certainly very talented. 
Yeah, offensively especially, he hit over 300. Uh, was his contact more impressive? Did you see something power-wise, considering he's a middle infielder, not usually a power position, but did he check those boxes as well? Was he all-around impressive, or was there one offensive skill that stuck out to you? I think you hit the, the nail right on the head, Paul. His contact rate really stood out. Um, you see a lot of guys in, in baseball, you know, especially over the past couple of years, the, the strikeout rate is, has started to rise a little bit, but um, with Taron, his recognition of pitches was incredible. Uh, he, he did not chase, very rarely would chase. And if he did strike out, you know, it, it may be a borderline strike three pitch, but he's not taking a ball. Uh, he's going to put the bat on the ball. And he sprays it to all fields. So he's not one of these left-handed hitters who you're going to see defenses put three guys in between first and second base. You know, He can hit the ball on the ground to the left side. Uh, he can shoot it to left, and he has power to left field as well, which is always nice to see when, when you see a left-handed hitter who can go oppo and, and leave the yard with some power. Um, that being said, he, he has pull power as well. Um, there was a stretch during the year where I believe he went uh, maybe 50 or 60 at bats and only struck out once during that stretch. Um, so it just it, it goes to show that his ability to recognize pitches, put the bat on the ball, take advantage of, of pitcher mistakes. Um, you know, it was pretty glaring. It's probably one of the reasons why he hit 300. You know, if, if your listeners aren't too familiar with the tourist, Paul, one of the, the big things about Asheville is we have a very hitter-friendly ballpark. And so anytime um, guys take a look at the, the batting average of, of players on the tourist, they say, well, you know, he, he, he plays at McCormick Field half the year. And um, you know, the, the fences are shallow. The home run numbers are a little bit inflated. Uh, but when you look at Taron, he was able to carry that over on the road. And that's one of the more telling stats uh, because there are a lot of pitchers parks in the South Atlantic League. And he was one of those guys who, who could use the whole field. And you give him a bigger outfield, he's going to find a way to, to, to put one in the gap. And he's pretty quick, too. So he, he can uh, get around to second or third. Well, that's good to know because Oriole Park at Camden Yards in Baltimore is another hitter's park as well. And those left-handed <laughs> hitters... If they get a hold of one, they can put one onto the flag court or even Utah Street. So, uh, <laughs> you know, maybe that's something that we could look forward to. But you mentioned his speed right there. He did have uh, just short of 20 stolen bases. Was his speed on the base paths noticeable? It was, yeah. You know, he, like I said, very heady player. So he could pick up tendencies from pitchers, when to run, uh, savvy runner. But but he was quick. Uh, he, he certainly could could run well. Um, the, the philosophy uh, with the tourists the past several years has been to run a lot. We've been one of the most successful running teams in the league. So when you give guys that type of freedom, you can kind of see, OK, this guy has speed, but can he steal bases? Uh, there's a little bit of a difference there. Um, and, and he was very successful when he did decide to run. Um, as far as, you know, his his power, which you alluded to a second ago, Paul, I mean, he is not a, a an overly big guy by any means he's maybe six feet tall uh probably a, a little bit under 200 pounds but he's incredibly strong i mean he he just um I, i'm not a personal trainer or anything <laughs> like that but i would imagine his body fat is is very small a percentage um it's just all muscle uh, so he does have loud pop when he connects and uh as far as his base running goes i would i would imagine that he'll continue to you know, fill out athletically and, and be able to run at the big league. 
big and, league level. And then defensively, he, he split time between shortstop and second base, I believe. Was there one position between those two that he was slightly better at? Yeah, in my opinion, Paul, and take that for what it's worth, I thought he was a little better at second base than he was at short. His glove was plenty, plenty good enough to play short. Um, I think the arm strength is one thing that uh, might – I don't want to say hinder him at short a little bit, but, but can be improved. And with his work ethic, you know, it, it's certainly something that, that he could develop and continue to, to get better at. Uh, but his defensive instincts are, are fantastic. Really, really solid glove. Um, you know, comfort his comfort level at, at both short and second were, uh, were outstanding. Um, so you're going to see him at middle infield. I didn't see him play any third, um, and again, you know, maybe he's one of those guys just because he, he's so adept to, to being around the baseball, you might be able to put in the outfield. Uh, but, but as far as his middle instincts or his, his fielding instincts go, I think middle infield and, and primarily seconds where I see him. Gotcha. Well, you mentioned, uh, him right at the end of the season, unfortunately missing time to injury, but did you figure at that point that was probably the last you were going to see of him because he was going to move his way on up through the organization? Oh, without a doubt. Um, you know, Paul, to be honest, a, a lot of guys who are probably ready to move up from Asheville will stay with us for, for the entire season. Um, having been with the team for the last 10 years and we've been affiliated with the Rockies that entire time of, I've gotten to, to know a little bit about how the Rockies like to advance their prospects. And they take the the full season low A level very seriously. It's the first year these guys are playing 140 games. Um, you know, they want them to prove they can do well for an entire year. So a lot of these guys who who are ready to, to maybe move up in the eyes of other organizations, the Rockies will leave them at that level. Uh, which I'm always fine with because it typically makes our team a little bit better. Um, and then the following year when they're put in high A, that's when they give them the opportunity, show us what you can do for 70 games, then we'll give you the leap up to double A. That's kind of the the midseason jumping point. You know, we'll have some movement here or there. Uh, but but for Taryn, you know, when, when he went to the IL, I think the the hope for everyone in Asheville was – are we going to get this guy back this year to, to get us into the playoffs? And it, it ended up coming down to the final week. And he, he continued to work every day and, and did everything that, that he possibly could do to get back out there on the field because that's just what he loves. And um, you can see it in the way that he plays. Uh, he was invested from the, from the dugout, which is not easy to do when you can't play. Uh, supported his teammates the, the entire season and – um, yeah, once once uh, the the season actually ended, we we knew that was that was going to be all we saw. Taryn, gotcha. Well, you just touched on it a little bit, but any final thoughts on on who he is as a person and as a clubhouse guy? You just mentioned his his work ethic. Was that kind of stuff noticeable uh, during his time, maybe in interviews or hearing from other players in Asheville? Did did his off the field character stand out as well? It, it did, Paul. Um, you know, one of the things that, that I do a lot with the tourists is I will set up interviews for players. And Taryn was one of my go-to guys. You know, always said yes anytime I asked him to do an on-camera interview or a radio interview. Uh, very mature, very polite. Um, and then, you know, he comes from a baseball family. He, he has older brothers who, who have played professional baseball. Um, his dad, I believe, is a, a coach in, in, in the major leagues as well. 
Um, so, you know, he's been around the game his entire life. And, and that really shows, you know, he, he has a great feel, you know, when he's when he's taking batting practice, when he's taking fielding practice, when when he's in the clubhouse, you know, he, he, he gets it. And, you know, for some of the guys at, at this level, you know, that that's part of the learning curve. And uh, for Taryn, he has that. Um, he, he's going to be excellent as far as um, getting getting to know the, the Baltimore media when he gets up there and. Uh, he'll be a fan favorite. Guys will love the way that he plays. Uh, and um, I would imagine he'll produce for you guys up there. I mean, th- there's a reason why why the Orioles, you know, picked him. And, um, you know, I, th- I think their scouts really hit the nail on the head uh, by by going after Taron. And uh, hopefully it'll, it'll work out for both teams. Absolutely. Well, those are all encouraging signs and encouraging things to hear about one of the newest members of the Orioles farm system, system Terran Vavra, who comes over, of course, via trade back in August, could be making his way to the Bowie Bay Sox, the AA affiliate for the Baltimore Orioles soon. But hopefully we get to see him somewhere playing some minor league ball or maybe even spring training camp down in Sarasota uh, in February. But Doug Maurer, thank you so much for hopping on and, and sharing your insight into Terran. Oh, you bet, Paul. Anytime. 